If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, the title of this morning's sermon is, What's in Your Heart? What's in Your Heart? We're in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23 here at Plasterita. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts, so if you'll join us again next week, we should be in Acts chapter 8. But this morning for New Year, we thought we would celebrate by uh, looking at this passage and having a message focused on our inner man, our heart, what's going on inside of us. So what's in your heart? And we're going to read again from Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. And he called the people to him, and again he said to them, and this is Jesus speaking, of course, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Father, we're humbled this morning to be able to sing the songs that we've sung and to hear the scriptures being read. And as we focus now on this special portion of your son's words to the early believers of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, how we desire to learn what you would have us learn today from this same passage and from these same truths, how quick we are to focus more on the outside than on the inside. And so I pray this morning as we again look and dive into this passage that you would open up your words and your truth to us in new and fresh ways that would cause us to ponder and to think and to be changed and to be transformed from the inside out. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when I was 23 years old, I bought my first car. Now, I had been driving since I was 16, but I had benefited from all the hand-me-downs of the family, having an older sister and an older brother. But when I was 23, I had my first job, and it was time to buy my first car. So I went to the used car lot, because my daddy told me, don't buy anything new. (laughs) save a little money, buy that used car, son. So I bought a Toyota Camry. It was black. It was leather interior. It had a sunroof. I mean, I thought I had arrived big time. And I also did what my dad told me to do. He said, take it to a mechanic and make sure they check it out. So I took it to a mechanic and he said, it all looks good. And I bought the car. And wouldn't you know it, three months later, that car's engine blew up. Sometimes things can look really good on the outside, but they may not be so good on the inside. I don't know what my mechanic was thinking, by the way. He must not have done it a really good uh, look over, but it broke down just a few months later. Sometimes you don't really know what's going on until you get inside of something. 
As many of you know, I used to work in medicine. I was a physician's assistant working in open heart surgery. A lot of times we would have people who would be operated on that looked sick on the outside. Maybe they were obese or they just looked really like unhealthy. But occasionally we'd operate on people who looked like a perfect picture of health. They would be in great shape. And it's not until you get on the inside that you can tell what's really going on in those arteries that sometimes can get blocked. you got to get on the inside to really know what's going on. Lisa and I have been blessed to raise five kids. That's a lot of applesauce. That's a lot of animated Disney movies. And do you know what else that's a lot of? That's a lot of diapers. That's a whole lot of diapers. They say you go through five to six diapers a day. And if your kid doesn't get potty trained until they're two or three years old, that's about 6,500 diapers per kid. With five kids, that's about 32,500 diapers. The average cost of a diaper is only about a quarter. But if you do the math, Lisa and I are in just over eight grand just on diapers alone. Not to mention baby wipes and diaper cream, but hey, what's all that compared to a college education? All right, so we're just getting started. My point in telling you this is out of all those diapers that we changed over the years, and my wife certainly changed the vast majority of them, but out of all those diapers we changed over the years, sometimes you smell a funny smell, but sometimes it might just be baby indigestion. They might just be having a little trouble with their stomach. You have to look in that diaper to actually see if there's a little present in there. You have to look on the inside, right? That's what I'm saying. The point is, you can't just look at the outside, what's in your heart, what's under your hood, what's in that diaper. You have to look on the inside. And this morning, as we're asking those questions, my question also would be, are you hiding something from others? Are you hiding something from yourself? Are you hiding something from God? The amazing truth about the Bible is God already knows. He knows it all, and he knows exactly what's going on in your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what your motives are. He knows everything. This morning, we're going to see how Jesus addresses the true state of the human heart. He fears no man. He tickles no ears. He withholds no truth. And in these verses that we're going to examine in Mark chapter 7, Jesus opens our eyes to the true state of the human heart. And it's not a good report that he gives. It's not a clean bill of health that Jesus presents as he diagnoses the human heart. There is no good progress report given. We see in these words our Lord opening up the chest cavity and looking into the human heart. He's looking into the spiritual inner man. And he gives us a true diagnosis on what is going on inside each and every man and woman who has ever lived. Jesus teaches that a man's greatest problem is not around him, that man's greatest problem is not what others do to him, man's greatest problem is not what he sees and what he says outwardly, but man's greatest problem is in his heart. It's about what he's thinking inwardly in the hidden person of the heart. This is the teaching of the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Remember when God was addressing Samuel to select another king for Israel because King Saul was not working out. Samuel was interested in David's oldest brother, Eliab, for he looked like a king outwardly. 
But you remember that the Lord told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks on our inside. He knows who we are. And in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is directly confronting the Pharisees, Luke 16, 15, Jesus says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So again, I ask you this morning, what is in your heart? And I want us to look at three truths about the heart so that you may focus not on the outside, but on the inside. Our first heading is this. Our first truth I want you to be aware of this morning is it's not about what goes in, but what comes out. And your first blank, if you are taking notes, is a plea to listen. A plea to listen. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. Now, in the context of Mark chapter 7, Jesus was in Galilee. He had just fed the 5,000. He had also just walked on water. In fact, if you look up at the last verse of chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 56, and whenever, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. That's the end of chapter 6. In the beginning of chapter 7, the Pharisees gathered around Jesus along with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and they began accusing Jesus and his disciples about eating with a uh, unceremonially clean hands. They, they were not performing the washing rites and regulations that the Jews were requiring. And this is straight up truth versus tradition. And the delegation of the scribes and the Pharisees had come to Capernaum to confront Jesus about his hand washing. In fact, if you look back up at, at verses 5 through 7 of this same chapter, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do, you disciples, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so throughout this chapter, Mark chapter 7, Jesus has been pointing out to the Jews that they were stuck in their own man-made traditions. They were more interested in what was going on with the disciples' hands than they were with what was going on in their own hearts. And Isaiah had said about Israel that they honored God at least in a general sense, with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. Their worship of God was in vain. They were just going through the motions. They were more focused, again, on the traditions of men than they were on the true commandments of God. And this would be like people today who focus more on what you wear to church and how you act in church. And if you take good notes in church, make sure you fill in all the blanks all right, sometimes we get so focused on that, we forget, are we really listening? And are we digesting what's being said? Is it transforming our inner man? How do I treasure Christ in my everyday life? Do I have a vibrant relationship with God? 
where I long to be in his presence. Better is one day, we sang, in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Are you just singing that because it's your favorite 90s worship song? Or do you really mean it? That you would rather be with him than anywhere else? God, I long to be in your presence. Or am I just going through the motions? Or is my heart engaged with worshiping and obeying a risen Christ with whom I have an ongoing relationship? And so in the midst of the context here is where we read verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And so when he says there in verse 13, you're making void the word of God, he's saying you're invalidating the word of God. You're refusing to recognize the power of God's word. You're rejecting the word of God. You're disregarding God's word because you're only using it as a manual for outer behavior. And you're not allowing the word to penetrate into your heart to show you what's really going on. And so Christ is confronting his listeners here. He's he's reminding them God's word goes deeper. It cuts to the heart. You, You can't disregard what God's word says. You can't say, well, I know the Bible says such and such, but I'm gonna handle this situation in a different way in an easier way, in a more popular way, in a more culturally acceptable way. So in verse 14, Jesus is calling the people to himself, and he says there, first verse of our text, listen to me, hear my words. Jesus is saying, pay attention to me and understand what it is that I'm saying. And basically, Jesus is saying, who cares about your traditions? If they're not based on scripture, they don't matter. And who cares about fearing man? You need to be fearing God. It is as if the crowd had somewhat dispersed and now Jesus wants them to gather again. Notice that there is nothing secret about the teachings of Christ. There are a lot of cults that have secretive teachings. But what Jesus says, he says publicly. And when he says, hear me or listen to me, he expects us to pay attention carefully to what it is that he's saying and to put it into practice. This is not a time to hear and not obey. This is a time for us to hear and to obey what it is that Jesus is saying. And then in verse 15, your next blank says there's a plain statement. So he makes a plea for them to listen yet again, and now he's going to make a very clear and a very plain statement here in verse 15. There is nothing outside a person, Jesus says, that by going into him can defile him. But what the things that come out of a person are that are what defile him. So it's not about what goes in, but about what comes out. And so you must realize again that the context of the statement has to do with adhering to the Old Testament law externally without having a changed heart. Not only are they adhering to the Old Testament law, but unfortunately they had added to the law again and again their own rules. For example, there was to be no working on the Sabbath because it was a day of rest. We understand that being the fourth commandment. But the rabbis had added to that, the idea of rest, they had added all kinds of working. In fact, the rabbis even debated in the Mishnah, which is like uh, Hebrew rabbi commentary on the scriptures, they had added to, uh, to this rule and they had discussed about a man, that if a man had a wooden leg and if his home caught on fire, could he 
carry out the wooden leg if this fire happened to happen on a Sabbath. These are the kind of conversations they're having. You know, they're like, hey, we can't have anybody work, and picking up a piece of wood is work. So if there's a, a house burning down, is it right or wrong for the guy to pick up his wooden leg and run out of the house if it happens on the Sabbath? Or would you be considered to be working and therefore in sin? There was the question about whether or not you could spit on the Sabbath. Because if you did spit, you would have to be careful where it landed because if it landed on the dirt and you happened to scuff it with your sandal, you would be cultivating the soil and thus performing work. So sorry for the all who still chew tobacco, all right? You can't spit on the dirt. And then the Sabbath was a major concern for the legalists, but there was also 186 pages in the Mishnah which were devoted to cleanliness, now, I know every mama likes to keep their kids clean, right? But 186 pages about cleanliness, much of the concern had to do with this excessive and ritualistic hand-washing. We see this mentioned in verses 3 and 4. Look back up at Mark 7, 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the, notice it says, to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So there's nothing wrong, again, with having traditions. You may have recently participated in many family traditions over the holidays. The problem only occurs when you place your traditions on par with Scripture. Now, again, washing hands was specifically commanded for the priests to wash their hands in Exodus 30, verse 19, and in Exodus 40, verse 12. Though this was only a priestly requirement, all pious Jews began to do it about 200 years before Christ. And by Jesus' day, it was firmly entrenched as a requirement for those who wanted to truly be clean. These Jews were washing all the time. Before meals, they would pour a little water over their hands they would even elevate them slightly to let the water run down off of their elbows like a surgeon scrubbing to go into his next operation. There were about 35 pages in the Mishnah directed exactly to them about how they were to wash the cups and wash the pots and wash the copper vessels. Jesus is plainly saying here in verse 15, it's not about the outer man, it's about the inner man. It's not about the outside, but it's what's on the inside that counts. This is exactly what Jesus had already been saying to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25 through 26, when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and the plate, so that the outside may be clean also. Well, I hope that you're listening this morning to what it is Jesus is saying. You may have even been trying to start off this new year with the idea of making some new rules, some new habits, some, some new good practicing behaviors, what we call New Year's resolutions. And I'm not against New Year's resolutions. Our family sat on the couch last night, and we just talked about things we would like to do differently in the new year, areas that we can grow, how we can hold each other accountable, where are we reading in the scripture, and we had a wonderful conversation. But we just want to be careful that we're not making all of our goals for the new year law on par with scripture. 
And we have to make sure that what we're really focusing on, beyond anything else, is the inner man. What's going on on the inside? Make sure that you resolve to have your heart cleansed. Make sure that it starts with being regenerated. It means to be born again by the grace of God and, and that, that, that then you're being washed with the water of the word. And then as conviction settles into your soul, you're living it out to the glory of God. But don't start constraining, uh, constraining yourselves to a whole lot of do's and don'ts if your heart is not in the right place. And then we see in verse 16, a polite reminder that's your next blank, a polite reminder right there in verse 16. Do you see verse 16? Go ahead and just look at verse 16. Oh, you guys are having trouble finding verse 16? It's not in there, right? Did you know that? There's some verses that are in various manuscripts. There's a little note in my Bible that says, uh, at the end of verse 15, it says, some manuscripts add verse 16. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. While most modern translations don't include verse 16, this same general phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, is found six other places in the synoptic gospels. So again, this isn't like one of those mysteries of like, oh, it should have been there and it's not. We're just saying some manuscripts have it, some don't. Either way, six times in the synoptic gospels, which means it's a regular thing for Jesus to say, him who has ears, let him hear. Whether he actually said it in this passage or not could be debated, but we know that's the kind of thing that Jesus said on a regular basis. And if he did say it here in this exact context, it would certainly be a good reminder of the importance of this concept that it's not about what goes in, but it's about what comes out. That's the point that we're learning here in our message this morning. And our second heading says something similar. Number two, it's not about the stomach, but it's about the heart. It's not about the stomach, but it's about the heart. Your next blank says further questioning, further questioning, verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. This has already happened on a couple of different occasions where the disciples needed a little extra clarification. They don't know exactly what Jesus meant by what he said and Please keep in mind, they're not questioning Jesus in the same way the Pharisees did. The Pharisees questioned Jesus in a way to catch him in a trap and to try to somehow get him to contradict himself. When the disciples are asking questions, they're asking honest questions like, Jesus, I'm not sure I fully understand what you meant. Can you explain that to us a little bit further? They just wanted to honestly understand what it was Jesus was saying with this parable about the outer man versus the inner man. And I would say that when we ask questions of God, we should ask questions like the disciples did, not like the Pharisees did. We're not here confronting God as if somehow God has to explain it to us because he's too confusing, but we're humbly approaching God saying, can you help me understand? And when we have questions, there's no better place to go than to God's word. Be reminded that God's word is inerrant. It is infallible. It is sufficient for all we need for life and godliness. God's word transcends all cultures and all times and all authorities. And so come to Jesus this morning with your questions. Come to Jesus with your dilemma. Come to Jesus this year to reap wisdom and insight and understanding. 
And of course it's good to read commentaries, biblical writings, articles, listen to sermons, listen to podcasts. All those things can be helpful, but I'm just saying at the end of the day, you've got to come to Scripture. You've got to grapple with the Scripture yourself. You have to spend time in God's Word. That's what we want to be doing. And so these disciples come to Jesus asking him for understanding, and Jesus gives them, your next blank says, further explanation. He gives them further explanation, verses 18 and 19, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared, all foods clean. Well, Jesus, here in verse 18, is not exactly thrilled about the lack of the disciples' understanding. He makes it abundantly clear of what he meant by what he said. I wouldn't say that Jesus is rebuking the disciples, but he does hint at the thought that they should be able to understand this simple teaching. Jesus says something very similar in the next chapter when Jesus had just fed the 4,000 and then the, the, the Jesus and the disciples got into the boat and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee and they were talking about how they had no bread and then Jesus said to them in Mark 8, 17 and 18, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? I mean, Jesus is basically telling them, I will provide the bread. Do you not understand that I am the bread of heaven? I will meet your physical needs, just like I've already fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, and I will meet your spiritual needs. Do you, do you remember what just happened? Don't worry about your life. Jesus is saying, come to me. Trust in me, partake of me, and you will be satisfied. So there's a few times Jesus needs to clarify, and aren't you glad that he's patient with us and that he continues to give us his word? That's why we have four gospels, all right? If you didn't get it the first time, just read the next one and the next one and the next one. So much of scripture continues to validate itself and to explain itself over and over again. If you can perceive or understand this morning, it's all because of grace. And if you can't perceive or understand this morning, it could be that your heart is still hard. The reason so many of us can't hear or understand Scripture is we've not yet been born again. Or you've not been spending time studying the Word of God. Or your heart has just grown cold and rebellious. You would rather feed your body than to feed your soul. And so here in Mark 7, Jesus is saying, Guys, you got to understand this. Now, part of the problem, again, I just said, is you can't understand unless you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who is enlightening your mind to see and understand the things of God. But part of the problem for those of us who are in Christ is that you're just not thinking for yourself. You have to study the Word of God. You have to examine everything that Jesus says and everything that Jesus does in this context. And as you do this, you will begin to learn more and more about what it is that Jesus is teaching you. Come to Christ with an open mind. Come to his word with a learner's spirit, and you will soon grow in your understanding and in your faith. And so at the end of verse 18, Jesus, again, makes it abundantly clear. He says, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. This means that food taken in through the mouth 
can't make you defiled. It's sin that is coming out of the heart is what makes you defiled. Physical substances in and of themselves don't defile a man. Food is not what defiles, it's what's in your heart that defiles us. We read that in our next verse, 19. Let me just give some further application, your next blank. Further application, verse 19 again. And he said, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. So Jesus is saying that when you eat food, it does not enter into your soul or your spiritual heart, but it enters your physical stomach. And then that food is processed and expelled. What you eat doesn't defile you. And in saying this, Jesus is essentially declaring all foods are clean. Now, one of the things that made this difficult to understand is that there were some very clear laws given in Moses' administration under the Old Covenant. You think about, again, the Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. There are some differences and some, some progression going on there. In the Old Covenant, you have the moral law, which is the law, the, the law between people and God. In the Old Covenant, you have the civil law, which is God's law between people and people. And in the Old Covenant, you also had the ceremonial law, which is God's law between people and things. So God gave us the moral law between people and God, the civil law between people and people, and the ceremonial law between people and things. And a subcategory of that ceremonial law was the dietary law and what the Hebrews could and could not eat. That's right, dieting started long before the 21st century. Now, you might feel like you need to be on a diet right now after the holidays, but this kind of diet was not about losing weight so much as it was about avoiding certain foods that were declared by God to be unclean in the Old Testament. So that, we understand that from, from being in the church, and we could go back and reflect on all those, but I want you to turn with me to Acts 10. Acts chapter 10, where this is addressed again in the New Testament with a little bit more fervor a little bit later here in the New, the New Testament, Acts chapter 10. You may remember here in this chapter that Peter went up on the housetop to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were still preparing the food, he fell into a trance. And then in verse 11 of Acts 10, it says... And Saul, talking about Peter, he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so at this point, as we compare Mark 7 and Acts 10, we understand it should be abundantly clear that we have now been, Jesus is in process and Acts 10 has fully transitioned from the Old Testament dietary law to the new covenant. There are now no foods which are declared unclean for the Christian. Now, if you have a food allergy, by all means, you need to avoid those foods for good stewardship of your own health. But what I'm trying to say, and what I believe Jesus is saying here, is that there are no religious diets in Christianity. There are no foods that are morally evil to eat. If you don't have a food allergy, you can eat whatever you want. 
You can eat pork. You can eat ham. This is the part where you say amen. Uh, you can eat bacon, right? You can eat fried chicken. You can eat chocolate. You can even have a little red food dye, numbers three, five, and six. Just a little bit, all right? In your snow cone, come on, M&Ms. You know, but the idea here is we're just making sure it's clear that it is not a sin to eat certain foods. And there are way too many people, even in our time in the New Covenant, who are starting to make too many dietary statements that are almost morally good and evil. And I just want to caution us that while we all want to be careful and good stewards with what we eat, it doesn't all have to be organic. Praise God. Come on. All right, so... Now, if you lean that way, that's fine. It's totally a preference. You can lean that way. We, we try to lean that way. All of us probably try to eat healthy. I'm just trying to say, make sure you don't make it such a big deal that it's a sin issue or not a sin issue. And Jesus is saying this, not necessarily in our contemporary time about what we're kind of joking about here, but in a more serious way about it was actually declared in the Old Testament, you can't eat certain foods or you would be in sin. And so now here in Acts 10, and Jesus has been hinting at it here already in Mark 7, that that is changing. There's a change going on here. And I just want to also say that many of the dietary restrictions given to the Jews in the Old Testament, according to Leviticus 11, uh, forbid, forbid the Israelites from eating pork, which we alluded to. But understanding the Mosaic law generally and the cultural view of swine in particular is essential to appreciating the law's restriction on eating pork in the first place. The law was given to the Israelites, and it had a number of important purposes. And following God's prescribed actions was not to be a simple ritual, but rather obedience to the law expressed, I'm talking about even in the Old Testament, obedience to that law expressed a strong internal faith in God and a healthy fear of Him. And Deuteronomy chapter 30 records uh, the blessings of God that would be granted to Israel if they did follow him and all of these laws and the curses that he would enact if they did not. And these blessings and curses were an integral part of the covenant between God and Israel. So the law was the basis of a conditional covenant. Also the law including the prohibition against eating pork, stood as a unique sign of the privilege granted to Israel by setting them apart from their pagan neighbors. The whole world in Moses' time was idolatrous with each nation believing in many deities. And so the forbidding of eating certain foods, such as pork, distinguished between what would be later termed Jew and Gentile. The dietary restrictions further indicated that Israel was to be a separate nation and a chosen people. And so saying no to eating pork and other practices of the pagans helped the Israelites to break free from idolatry, a sin that they assuredly struggled with constantly. And under the Old Testament law, not only was eating pork forbidden, but even touching the meat of swine made one ritually unclean. This detail further insulated the Israelites from pagan practices. The Canaanites kept herds of swine and sacrificed them to idols. And God wanted his people to distance themselves from all such activity. So while we kind of laugh at it today, let's just be reminded it was good and right to have the law just the way that God gave it. 
Not only that, there were some hygienic concerns related to the law's dietary restrictions, including the ban on eating pork. It is well known today that pork carries any number of diseases, and the meat requires stricter cooking techniques than other meats, such as beef or chicken. In Moses' day, there was no knowledge of microscopic pathogens, and the cultural norm was to eat raw or undercooked meat. Now, I like my steak a little pink in the middle, but this was taking it to a whole new level. And so God was just telling them, of course, that you have to eat what I say that you can eat, don't eat what you can't eat, and part of that was to protect them even physically, for eating undercooked pork would have posed a significant health threat to the Israelites. But God providentially protected his people by giving them the Mosaic Law. And he said, if you pay attention to these commands and keep all these decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So Peter, who wanted to follow the Old Testament regulations, really struggled with this transition. He's up on the house, the sheet comes down, all the animals are in it, the voice from Christ says, kill and eat, and Peter's kind of like saying, over my dead body, I would never do that. And then we read, look over at chapter 11, Acts 11, you're not in a chapter 11, hopefully, uh, but Acts 11 verse 9 says, but the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. So he said it in chapter 10, he said it now in chapter 11, this is a clear transition again from the Old Testament dietary regulations to the New Testament freedom we have in Christ to eat whatever we want. The old covenant had served its purpose, but now under the law of Christ, these dietary restrictions have been officially removed. Paul even said that eating meat sacrificed to idols is a Christian liberty. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. You know what he's saying? I don't care what you eat. I don't care what you drink. Long as it's done in moderation to the glory of God and not a clear sin, there's Christian liberties that we have. Being a legalist, meaning restricting things from your diet that you think God may want you to restrict from your diet, since we've just been told in the New Testament it's all clean, being a legalist doesn't make you holy. Exercising your liberty doesn't make you holy. What makes you holy is the imputed righteousness of Christ And as a regenerated person with a new heart, you then want to live a holy life that will bring God glory and that will truly satisfy your soul and your longing to be happy. It only comes from walking in obedience with the right heart. Sin never satisfies. Rules don't satisfy. Diets don't satisfy. Religious things don't satisfy. Understanding what's right and wrong doesn't satisfy. What satisfies is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God satisfies. He fills your heart. And as he fills your heart, you begin to be so enamored and so called up in what it means to love him and to live for him and to walk with him that these silly conversations about diet 
And silly conversations, I would say at times, about the vaccine or silly conversations about all the regulations that we face. I'm not saying, in a sense, it's not important because we have to make decisions. I'm just saying at the end of the day, it's not a clear right or wrong. God cares about your heart. He cares about the fact that we would have understanding, that we would have wisdom. And that, that word wisdom is something that's talked a lot about. That's what, it's actually what brings us satisfaction, as Ecclesiastes talks about. Ecclesiastes talks about, hey, we need to have wisdom so that we can be satisfied because nothing else in this world satisfies us. Listen to a couple of verses from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Ecclesiastes 4.8, his eyes are never satisfied with riches. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Ecclesiastes 6.7, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Again, just some verses just talking about nothing on the outside will satisfy you. It's not about the stomach It's about the heart. Or to say it another way, it's not about physical things. It's about spiritual things. It's about a vibrant, encouraging, engaging, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. And oh, how I hope that this year you will take your eyes off of your stomach and place them onto your heart. That you will take your eyes off of your 401k and place them onto your eternal reward. That you would take your eyes off of all your stuff and place them on things that money can't buy. Like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what God wants us to focus on. This is what this passage is about this morning in Mark chapter 7. Let me give you a third truth this morning. Number three, it's not about what's without, but what's within. It's not about what's without, but what's within. Your next blank, what's on the inside will come to the outside. What's on the inside will come to the outside. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts. So sin doesn't first exist externally, it first exists within our hearts. Wayne Grudem, well-known theologian, defines sin as, quote, any failure to conform to the, law, to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. What he is saying is that sin is made up not only of individual outward acts, but it's also in our inner attitudes, which reveal, uh, which, uh, reveal what's going on in our hearts. So it's about outward acts and inward attitudes, The third part of that definition is also it's about our nature. It's about our nature. So to summarize that definition, sin is what we do. It's an action. Sin is how we think. It's an attitude. And sin is who we are, our nature. Sin is what we do, an action. Sin is how we think. It's an attitude. And sin is who we are. That includes our very nature. And the good news is, is that Jesus changes all three. He changes you fully. He changes our nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. He changes our attitude or how we think. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
And he helps us bring change in our actions. Romans 6.13, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's why Paul says in Romans 7.24 and 25, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when Jesus makes you new in your nature, he also makes you new in your attitude and new habits began to be demonstrated in your obedience. Now we'll still struggle and we are still learning to walk in the spirit and to mortify sin every day. Our hearts have been made new, but we have to daily guard our hearts against sinful tendencies. And Jesus goes on to talk about how our thoughts are evil And they come out of our heart, verses 21 to 22, give us actually six evil actions that come out of an evil heart. Your next couple of blanks there, six actions. So six evil actions that come from a sinful heart. Number one, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. So again, you see there in verse 21, he's saying, hey, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. The first one listed there, sexual immorality. This is specifically premarital sex or sexual immorality of an unmarried person. You could also include pornography as part of this category. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, and he goes on to list a whole host of sins there, but we're just reminded here that we are not to have or be involved with sexual immorality in our actions. Number two, Thefts, the idea of being a thief. He mentions that there again in in verse uh, 21 is the second number, the second act, outer act that you could do. You could be a thief. This would include shoplifting, cheating at school, stealing by being lazy with your time on the job, withholding taxes. We understand Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. A third evil act that's mentioned here, murder, murders. This would be cold-blooded murder. This would include abortion. This would include anger. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Number four, adulteries. Again, just a list of six acts here. Sexual immorality of a married person. If sexual immorality, number one, was more for the single individual, and it could be more encompassing to that, but certainly adultery replies mainly and specifically to a married person where a man has another man's wife. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, Matthew 5, 27, but 28 also says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Number five, deeds of coveting. This would include sinfully desiring something that does not belong to you. Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his sports car making sure you saw that in there. It's back in Exodus 20. Number six, deeds of wickedness. Deeds of wickedness. 
This could be translated as malicious acts and refers to all manifestations of wickedness, anything that you would do. Proverbs 11:5. the righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. So again, he just gives a list here of six actions. They're not exhaustive, meaning there are more things to avoid, but this list is a pretty good summary of the Ten Commandments. But we must understand this morning that Christianity is not just a big list of do's or don'ts, but it's also about the heart. God cares about what you do, but he also cares about what you think. He cares about what's going on inside of you. He cares about your heart, what you're thinking. He cares about what's going on in the inside. And so in the second part of verse 22, Jesus addresses our attitudes. So after giving us six actions, he addresses six attitudes. There in verse 22, the first one being deceit. So again, these are evil thoughts, the process of thinking thoughts that are contrary to the truth. As we're thinking evil thoughts that are contrary to the truth, that could be doubting God, not taking at his word, denying the truth. But deceit here, the first one that's listed as an attitude, this, this would involve lying, scheming, bearing falsehood. 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in, his, in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Another attitude would be sensuality that's listed right there, verse 22, sensuality, hinting at a lack of self-control and characterizes the person who gives free play to sinful impulses. Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Number three, a third attitude would be envy. Envy, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It has to do with an evil eye. Envy is the displeasure of seeing someone else with something that you want. Number four, slander. Slander, any kind of abusive speech against others or against God. This would include blasphemy. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and clamor uh, be put away from you along with all malice. Uh, number five would be pride, arrogance, making yourself or thinking of yourself as greater than someone else. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then a sixth attitude that he mentions here would be foolishness, acting like an unsaved person in any sinful way. Ephesians 5.17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so Jesus is teaching again that it's not about what you eat, it's about what's going on in your heart. And out of your heart come thoughts, and from those thoughts come actions. And so Jesus lists six actions and six thoughts that he doesn't want us to do or think about. And then he reiterates in verse 23, kind of wrapping up this section, what's within is what defiles. What's within is what defiles. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. All these things, all 12 of them, everything you think and everything you do, it came from you. No one made you do it. It's part of your nature, part of your evil thinking, and then part of your evil actions. Real defilement is spiritual not physical. Now, sin can become physical, no doubt, but we're just saying it starts and that defilement in your heart starts as a spiritual sin. In other words, Jesus is way more concerned about what you're thinking 
in this context of Mark 7 than what you're eating. He's way more concerned about what's going on in your heart than he is about what's going on in your stomach. And so as we begin this new year, let me ask you again, what's in your heart? Look again at those 12 things that Jesus is saying, hey, don't do these things. Don't think these things. Which one of those six in each list do you struggle with? Which one of those would be your nemesis? Which one of those would you say, hey, you know what, this year, 2022, I know you said don't be legalistic about resolutions, but my resolution is I don't want to do that anymore. Because that's a clear sin, and I'm praying that God would help me grow in my inner man and in my inner being by getting stronger and stronger in my walk with Christ so that I don't keep giving in to that. Are you fighting it? And in order to fight against sin, you have to work on your heart, being softened and growing and being fertile. In order to do that, you got to work at it. Can I just remind you of a couple of spiritual disciplines here at the beginning of the new year that will help you fight this fight? Read your Bible. My goodness, what a great Sunday to be reminded. It's only January 2nd. It's not too late to pick out a reading plan for this year that you just make it really simple and plain. You know what? I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I'm going to read through the chronological Bible this year. I'm going to read through the New Testament this year. It's not necessarily about the volume it's just about something. Just pick a place in the Bible. I'm going to read something from God's Word every day. And as I read from God's Word, I'm also going to meditate on the Scripture. Certainly, we're not going to just check a list. If I read my Bible today, I'm good to go. No, I read it and I thought about it. And I stopped and I paused and I pondered and I used some study notes, maybe if you have a, a good study Bible. And I, and I began to memorize parts of those, of those verses that I've been reading because I want it to be part of me. Let me encourage you to commit this year to spend more time in prayer, that as you read God's word, that you begin just to pray and ask God to help you be strong on the inner man, that you would love Christ more than you love your sin. Let me encourage you also to get some accountability. Some of the sins that we struggle with are maybe of a private nature, Maybe you need some accountability. Maybe it's a public nature and you still need accountability. You need somebody who's got your back, who will ask you hard questions, who's not afraid to have a real conversation about where you are, what you struggle with, and how they can stand in the gap together with you, that they can pray for you. Maybe you need to commit this year in 2022 to be involved in more meaningful discipleship, just spending time with other believers. Maybe you need to join a small group. Maybe you need to come to youth group on Wednesday nights or to our men's uh, theology class called Mighty Men. We start up not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday. Maybe you need to come to the women's Bible study. You, you just need to be around other godly men and women so that you can grow in your love for Christ because that's how you get your heart changed. It's you one-on-one -on -one with Christ. It's you reading the Word, meditating on the Word, memorizing the Word, spending time in prayer, getting accountability, spending time in good biblical discipleship, Maybe a last passage that will wrap all this up for us would be Proverbs 4, 20 through 22, where he says, My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. From it flow the springs of life. 
what's in your heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend some time in your word this morning. A familiar passage, plain statements from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but oh, so helpful and such great reminders and even convicting this morning to just think about how often we get wrapped up in outer things, temporal things, instead of focusing on that which is eternal, that which would be on the inside. God, I pray that you would save people from sin even this day. I pray that you would deliver us from sin as we want to walk in a more sanctified path of, of just coming back to your word and putting off and being renewed in the spirit of our minds and putting on holy habits that would glorify you. Help us to remember past this passage and others that we've looked at throughout this year that we would realize that 2022 is a year that you want all of our heart to be dedicated to you. So I pray, God, that you would grow in us a greater love for you each and every day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.